It's 4.50 in the morning on February 10th in India. It's the year 2020, and the rest of the world is hearing about COVID for what might be the first time. It was quiet in the jail cell holding 47-year-old Jolly Ama Joseph, except for the sound of a faint scratching and what might be interpreted as a moan. This sound woke one of Jolly's cellmates who glanced across the dimly lit room. Something wasn't right so she looked a little harder, then called for the guards. Jolly was found bleeding in her cell. Her bed and the wall next to it was covered in blood. She had bitten through the tissue on her wrists in an attempt to kill herself. In order to keep her wounds open and bleeding, she had repeatedly rubbed her wrists on the wall. Many people in Kerala believed that her attempt at suicide was really just an attempt to gain the sympathy of the public and those who would officially and lawfully judge her. Jolly, like most criminals, hoped to escape the consequences of her choices. This is Twisted Travel and True Crime. Welcome aboard. I say welcome aboard because I do podcast from a small sailboat, so you will hear some boat noises. Today we're going to Kerala, India. This area is often called the Venice of India. Lush green plantations, serene, winding backwaters, and spice plantations are a few of the features that define Kerala as one of the most popular tourist destinations in India. As you travel further inland from the coast, the buildings and the homes are smaller, but more spaced out. This is the area where Jolly Ama Joseph grew up. In 1997, when Jolly was a pretty 25-year-old, she would meet Roy Thomas at a wedding. Sparks flew and they began dating. They fell hard for each other and eventually decided it was time to introduce each other to their parents. As part of these introductions, and as most parents would do, they questioned and evaluated their child's partner. Roy's parents were teachers and education was important to them, so one of the first questions they would ask Jolly was what type of education she had. Jolly, wishing to make a good impression, embellished her education when speaking with Roy's mother, Anima. Jolly casually mentioned that she had a postgraduate in commerce. Although Jolly was smart and she had attended college, she had never graduated with a degree. It was just a harmless white lie, and what did it really matter? The truth was she had been kicked out of the local college for theft, but she kept that bitter little secret to herself. Love continued to blossom between Roy and Jolly, and they married in 1998 making Jolly the daughter-in-law of a highly respected family from Panamatum. After the marriage ceremony, Jolly moved into the family home, whose members included Tom Joseph, a former teacher who would retire as an officer of the state education department, his wife, Anima, who was also a beloved and respected teacher. Jolly's husband, Roy, was the oldest son, but his sister Renji and younger brother Rojo lived in the home as well. The family was one of the first households in the area in which everyone was well-educated. The Panamatam family's advice and decisions were considered to be the final word among locals because of the power, education, and the stature of the teaching profession put the family members in a highly respected position. Jolly was also from a well-to-do family, but from an agrarian background. Her father was a pepper farmer. Here, in the proud Panamatum home, she felt isolated and less than. Her husband, Roy, unfortunately lost his job, which wasn't really a surprise to the family. 
He never had been able to hold a job and was considered unambitious and lazy. Because of this, Jolly began feeling more inferior, and she struggled to find a way to feel worthy and to have more power and status. Roy didn't help the matter. He searched for jobs but never found a permanent one and constantly borrowed money from his parents for various business ventures, all of which ended in losses. Once Jolly was part of the Panamatum home, she quickly realized that Anima was the head of the family, especially in financial matters. People from all over the community came to her for advice, and she had complete sway over every bit of money spent and allocated money for different family expenses. She left no room for extravagance, which Jolly found terribly insulting. Still, Jolly did everything she could to impress and help her mother-in-law. Once Anima retired from her teaching job, money became even tighter and pressure mounted on Roy and Jolly. This coincided with Jolly giving birth to her first child. There were additional mouths to feed and less money coming in. Anima began to question Jolly about why she, as a postgraduate girl, was sitting idle at home with a young baby and not looking for a job. Every excuse that Jolly threw by Anima was shut down. So what if the baby was little? Anima would be happy to babysit. The bottom line was that Roy and Jolly needed to contribute more to the household. Going to work was one of the last things Jolly wanted, so she waited, pressuring Roy. He was trying to find his job, but his reputation preceded him, which barred him from some jobs, and when he managed to get one, he would soon lose it. Anima soon insisted that Jolly surely could get a degree if she used her master's. Jolly was backed into a corner. She didn't have that degree. Her lie was coming back to haunt her. This was a time where she could have made a decision to tell the truth and beg for forgiveness, but she didn't. What she did was try to buy time while she figured out what she could do. Her little spur-of-the-moment lie was beginning to feel like a burden. She was backed into a corner and had to do something, but instead of being honest, she chose to sneak into her father-in-law's office. Remember, he was an officer for the education board, which helped place teachers. He had access to a multitude of resumes. When no one was around, Jolly stole the paperwork of an applicant, replacing her name with the applicant's name, and made copies of her certificates. This made Jolly look like she had the degree she always said she did. She began flashing the paperwork around, telling everyone about her degree, and soon after she announced that she wanted to become a teacher. But first she had to complete a teaching course. This probably seemed wonderful to her in-laws, who were both teachers. Anima went along with Jolly's plans and agreed to pay for her classes. Now Jolly steps into the role of hard-working student. She took the money for the course and pretended to go to classes every day for ten months. No one knows where she went or how she spent her days, but after the duration of the course, Anima brings up job prospects once again. Jolly is more prepared and she has another lie lined up. She says that she has a job now in the same town where her course took place but she has high hopes for an even better position. In order for her to get this position, she has to take some continuing education courses. Once again, Anima falls for the lies, and once again, she gives Jolly money for a facetious course. Jolly continues to leave every day, pretending to be at her teaching job, 
and she pretends to take her continuing education classes. Surely she knew her lies couldn't go on forever. One day, Anima would ask Jolly about when she'd start receiving a paycheck. When that day came, Jolly had another choice to make. Once again, she could come clean. But no, instead, she made the decision to murder her mother-in-law. She felt the best choice was to kill the woman that she had looked up to, admired, and felt she had to impress. The woman who, in Jolly's opinion, now nagged and pressured her endlessly. Jolly began to plan how she would kill Anima and take over responsibility as head of the household. If Anima was dead, Jolly would hold the family's purse strings and she would be free of the matronly pressure. She'd kill two birds with one stone. She put her plan into action by being the perfect daughter-in-law. She worked endlessly to make everyone happy and love her. She asked Anima if she could help with the family finances. She had a fake master's degree in commerce, after all. Surely she could manage the home's finances. She impressed Anima by wanting to become familiar with the financial responsibilities, and it was Anima's trusting and teaching nature that made it easy for Jolly to manipulate her. Once Jolly had gathered enough knowledge from Anima, it was time to take her out. Jolly tried to poison Anima twice. The first time, Anima got some bad indigestion. The second time, she had convulsions and was admitted to the hospital, but wasn't in any serious danger. If at first you don't exceed, it's only attempted murder, and that wasn't enough for Jolly. She realized she needed something stronger. She remembered when she was a child, her father had to put down a big dog because it became dangerous to visitors. Her father had picked up a prescription for something called dog kill, aptly named, I'd say. Jolly went to a veterinarian's office far from her home, and she told them she had a large dog she needed to put down. She used a false name and walked out with the prescription for the poison, which she then filled. She took the poison to her childhood home and tried it out on her own dog, one that had once been a beloved pet of hers. The poor dog died quickly, and Jolly felt prepared. Now all that was left was to find a good time to kill her mother-in-law. She chose to do it during festival time in Kerala. During this time, everyone would take ten days off from work, and families gathered to celebrate their wealth and abundance. The day before Jolly planned to murder Anima, she cooked her mother's favorite mutton soup. She mixed the poison into it and hid it away overnight so that the smell and the taste would diminish. Then, on August 22, 2002, Anima started her day with a shower, prayers, and breakfast. The house staff were on leave, and Jolly was there to serve her beloved mother-in-law, her favorite mutton soup for breakfast. Jolly begins chattering on about work, family, and the plan for the day as Anima eats the soup. If it doesn't taste or smell right, Anima politely doesn't mention it. In just a couple of minutes, the poison begins to take effect. Anima begins to feel weak and collapses, frothing at the mouth and eventually dying. Jolly stands over her mother-in-law, unmoved, letting the poison do its work. Eventually, she screams, waking everyone in the house. Then she runs outside, calling for the neighbors. 
She screams, she's had a heart attack, she's had a heart attack. Family and friends rush Anima to the hospital. At the hospital, Jolly explains that she had complained of chest pains right before she collapsed, suggesting that it must be a heart attack. The doctors agree and pronounce Anima dead on arrival at age 57. After the matriarch of the Panamatum family died, everyone expected things to fall apart in the home. They wondered if Jolly would be able to manage things as effectively as Anima had, and she did. The biggest difference was that Jolly gets a bit bossy, and she begins to dress in more expensive clothes. She now held the family purse strings, and no one but her really knew how much money was moving in and out of the family's accounts, because she took care of those matters. She insisted that she quit her fake job and take care of the home, and by all accounts she did a fine job. She treated Tom, the new widower, as her own father. She took care of him instead of trying to push him out of the family or make him feel like an outsider in a home that she now ran. She took over the care of Tom, including his food preparation and his daily medication. She even managed his social engagements. Life was good. Jolly delivered a second son in 2004, which made everyone in the family happy. She helped take care of Renji and Rojo as they grew and went on to school and college. She often acted more like a mother than a sister-in-law. When the time came, she arranged her sister-in-law Renji's marriage, and she supported her brother-in-law Rojo when he said he wanted to go forward with his career plans overseas. When they began moving on with their individual life plans, Jolly was right behind them, cheering them on. She became a role model for her family, her neighborhood, and her church. She even ran the PTO for her boys' school for two years. She seemed very busy and happy in her life, but now she wanted more. Or maybe after being a stay-at-home mother and an all-around caregiver, she was feeling a little overwhelmed and wanted less work. Either way, she made an announcement that she was going to take a job as a lecturer on the nearby NIT campus. This was a lie, and seemed like a totally unnecessary one, because she had what she wanted before. She was able to be a stay-at-home mother. She didn't have to go off to work to earn money. No one was bothering her about going to work at all. No matter, she changed her mind, and now she wanted something different. She had a fake identity card made and hung it on a lanyard. She pretended to go to work every single day. She would dress up, wrapping the ID around her neck and parade around. She even wore the ID to family events on occasion. She bought herself a new car and began dressing in trendy styles. She was well-liked and was given the nickname Teacher among the neighboring families. There was only one big flaw in her plan. There was no money coming in. She had kids in school, a husband who never worked, a father-in-law to take care of, and now she had a lavish lifestyle that she had become accustomed to. The problem was the money was going quickly. Jolly would spend a lot of time on the NIT campus, sometimes in the library, sometimes at the canteen, and sometimes at a nearby salon, but she didn't actually do any work there. Later, when the truth comes out, the rumor would be that she lured unsuspecting victims into get-rich schemes. They would give her money that she said she would invest for them, and instead she spent it on herself. Another rumor was that she started a student sex ring. 
These haven't been proven, but what has been proven is that she teamed up with a local politician. He ran a real estate agency in which Jolly invested a lot of money. Where did she get this money from? Well, easy. It was Tom, her father-in-law. She asked him to sell his land and give her the money to invest as she saw fit. He willingly did so. What happened to those investments is unknown. Maybe she didn't make enough money from them because she kept asking Tom for more and more money until most of his life savings had been transferred to her. The only thing Tom wouldn't give her was the house. No matter how many times she asked, and she was persistent, he refused to put it in Roy and Jolly's names. He wanted the house to go to his other two children, Rojo and Renji. Time was ticking, and Jolly needed money, so once again she began planning a murder. During her long days of freedom, she became entangled financially and sexually with several people who would be accused of helping her. Her third murder began by the forging of a fake will. She signed Tom's name to it and had a notary attest it. This was hurried along by her politician, realtor friend. The new will signed the house over to Roy and Jolly. Now all she had to do was get rid of Tom. Her husband Roy had a friend named Matthew. The men spent a lot of time together. In time, Jolly and Matthew became quite friendly. In fact, they became friendly enough that Jolly began sleeping with Matthew under Roy's nose. Roy was an alcoholic and evidently a pushover. Matthew supplied Roy with as much alcohol as he wanted, and in return he would get to sleep with Roy's wife. Matthew had connections to a jeweler. The jeweler had access to cyanide. Cyanide is very hard to come by legally in India. However, it was used regularly in jewelry making. I had to do a little research to find out that it's used to separate pure gold from alloys or mixed metals. Jolly had asked Matthew for one little favor. Could he get her some cyanide from his jeweler friend? Matthew did this, and he would later tell police he offered the jeweler a couple gallons of alcohol and a night with Jolly. The jeweler denied these accusations, saying that he was told the poison was to kill a couple big rats. However it went down, it doesn't matter much, because Jolly now had cyanide at her disposal. Jolly took the poison, hid it inside one of Tom's old inhalers, stuck it in a coffee can, and pushed it to the back of a tall cupboard. On the morning of August 22, 2008, Jolly takes Tom's daily mushroom capsules, empties them out, and refills them with cyanide. At the end of the day, close to dinner time, she reminds Tom to take his capsules. Tom thanks Jolly for the reminder and pops them in his mouth, swallowing them with some water. A few minutes later, he begins to feel uneasy, and Tom calls out to her for help. Jolly says, it must be gas, you'll be all right, but the cyanide works quickly. Jolly was probably hoping she'd given him a big enough dose, but a few anxious moments later, Tom begins to convulse and falls to the floor, frothing at the mouth. She begins screaming and crying for help. Tom is rushed to the hospital by neighbors. He was there for only a short time before being pronounced dead. It was labeled as a heart attack. No one questioned it. He was getting older, at age 66, and he hadn't been the same since his wife had died. 
Jolly got away with murder once again. She and Roy now ruled the roost. The will clearly stated the house was theirs. Rojo and Renji were a little surprised and a little bit angry when they found out. Rojo would file a property dispute case and ask the extended family what they should do. The response was that Tom must have been worried about Roy since he didn't have a job. Renji had a nice new husband and family, and Rojo had a great job in Florida. Just let Roy and Jolly be. Everything was going Jolly's way, but by Christmas, neighbors began sensing that things weren't going great between Roy and Jolly. They were drifting further apart. While Jolly's friendship group grew bigger and bigger, and seemed to include several men, Roy's had been shrinking for some time. Now the only problem in Jolly's mind was that she had to share a house with a husband that she didn't really like anymore. Neighbors saw people coming and going from the house, but they were all going to visit Jolly. She was seen every day heading to her job at NIT. The neighbors saw Jolly as a woman who was single-handedly managing the homestead, while her loser husband spent his time at the market and quenching his drinking. This was a role and a habit Jolly likely supported because she had a plan. On September 30th, 2011, Jolly poisons Roy, but before doing that, she puts her sons, now age 12 and seven, to bed. She tucks them in, likely snuggles with them for a little bit, maybe reads them a book. She had made Roy's favorite meal for dinner, but he wasn't home yet to eat it. At eight o'clock, Jolly goes downstairs, pulls the inhaler out of the jar in the cupboard, and pinches some of the cyanide into the chickpea curry and rice, preparing it for Roy's arrival. She then retreats to her bedroom. She then thinks that maybe Roy's too drunk to eat, so she goes back downstairs and fills a glass of water, making sure to sprinkle some cyanide in it, too. Soon she hears Roy getting home. It's quiet for a little while. Then she hears footsteps coming down the hallway. She pretends she's sleeping. Roy cracked the door open and turned on flashlight mode on his phone. He shines the phone into the room and Jolly pretends to sleep. He moves on to the boys' room and then he returns to the kitchen. Soon Jolly hears the sound of Roy enjoying what would be his last meal. Then there's silence. She tiptoes downstairs and notices that Roy had gone into the bathroom. Soon she hears the sounds of vomiting and coughing. She feels a sense of relief. She straightens up the meal, washing the dishes and the cup. She puts everything away while she listens to Roy dying. When it becomes silent, she phones the neighbors. They rush over, and within minutes, they're knocking down the door to the locked bathroom in order to reach Roy. They find him convulsing and foaming at the mouth. They rush him to the hospital where he dies at age 30. Once again, Jolly claims it must be a heart attack, but this time, Anima's brother, Matthew Manganiel, insists on an autopsy on Roy. Jolly is not happy about this and resists, but Matthew doesn't give in, and an autopsy is done. Surprise! Roy didn't die from a heart attack. No, instead, his blood work definitely shows that he died from cyanide poisoning, according to the coroner's report. Everyone is shocked, but Jolly seems unruffled. She now says he must have committed suicide. Lamentably, everyone believed he was capable of it because of the way his life had been going. 
Jolly breaks down in front of the doctors and close family. She says she's worried about the honor of the family. She doesn't want people to know that he committed suicide, especially for the children. She said she didn't want her husband's name tarnished in this way. Then she proceeded to faint. Concerned for her rules, and when she wakes, she asks the few people who knew the truth if they would agree to tell everyone that it was a heart attack. They concur. Let's talk about Matthew Mangendiel. He was Jolly's mother-in-law's brother. Is that an uncle-in-law? Matthew was the only one to question Roy's death. He was the only one that suspected something strange about Jolly. Matthew was one of the first to reach the house when Roy died. He was also one of the first to reach the house when Tom and Anima died. He suggested the autopsy on Roy, and when Jolly disagreed, he persisted, calling Rojo in Florida and asking permission from Rojo to have the autopsy done. He then went behind Jolly's back, and this ticked her off. When Jolly begged for him to go along with the heart attack explanation, he felt stuck between his convictions and her pleas. Eventually, he capitulated and kept quiet. For months after Roy's death, he would bring it up with Jolly, constantly questioning her about Roy and what happened that day. How was he acting? Was he drunk? Did he leave a note? He just couldn't understand why Roy would do what he had supposedly done. Jolly said she couldn't understand either and was disappointed because she had made such a wonderful meal for Matthew, which he never ate. Jolly told Matthew that Roy must have locked the bathroom door in order to kill himself in privacy to placate Matthew, but internally she was angry with him for asking so many questions. We all know the old saying, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Jolly, in a friendly ruse, asks Matthew to help her settle an ongoing dispute between Rojo and herself about the home and property. She said she wanted to give Rojo and Renji something, since they hadn't been given anything at all in the fake will that Tom made. Matthew was happy to help, because he believed Rojo and Renji deserved something too. This made Jolly look good, and made regular meetings with Matthew seem normal. She invited him over pretty regularly to discuss the property. Allegedly, he left a bottle of alcohol there, partially filled one night, and she tucked it away in the cupboard. Although Jolly had plenty of opportunities to kill Matthew in her home, she didn't do it. She had her sights set on him now, but that would be too obvious, wouldn't it? This time she changed her modus operandi, just a little bit. You see, Matthew was a heart patient. He'd had an angioplasty in the past. In fact, just one week before his murder, he went to see his doctor. He had a clean bill of health, but facts are facts and his heart wasn't beating at 100%. On February 24, 2014, Jolly made her move. Most of the family had gone to a wedding, but she had made an excuse to stay home. She knew Matthew wasn't planning on going to the wedding and would be home alone as well. When the coast was clear, she walked to Matthew's house. She cooks him lunch and even shares it with him. No, she didn't poison his food. In fact, she leaves everything she brought laying around. Well, all but one thing. She wanted to return his partially filled bottle of alcohol. Whiskey, in fact. Whiskey that she had spiked with cyanide. He poured a polite drink to have with his lunch and offered Jolly some, but she politely turned him down, making some excuse or another. 
She'd offered him a glass of water, with a little bit of cyanide in it as well, just to make sure. In just a few minutes, Matthew was dead. She cleans up the liquor bottle and washes the water glasses, making sure that Matthew was well on his way to death before she calls the neighbors. They rush him to the hospital, where he dies at the age of 67. This time, there's no one to challenge the claims of heart attack. Now, Jolly's on a roll, and she didn't stop there. She's killing with more frequency. She becomes confident, almost cocky even. She already has her sights on the next victim. Jolly needed a new husband. She'd run out of money before long, so she began looking for a man who had some. But she also wanted a man who was easy to manipulate. She wanted another pushover. She believed that a longtime family friend would meet her needs. His name was Shaju. So what that he was married and had a family? Obviously, that wasn't a problem for Jolly. She'd been friends with him and his family for years. She often acted as a mother to their two-year-old daughter, Alfine. Jolly played with the toddler, fed her, hugged her, and cared for her as if she were her own child, just like she'd done for their older son. Shaju and his wife, Seely, trusted her completely. On May 1, 2014, Shaju and his wife were hosting a brunch at their home. Seely was busy entertaining the guests, laughing and chatting with them while serving them breakfast. Two-year-old Alfine was happy and full of energy, making her rounds and playing with the guests, running from place to place with squeals of happiness, as toddlers do. Jolly was seen playing with her, as did many of the guests that morning. So it was a surprise when suddenly Alfine began choking and vomiting. The happy scene changed to one of panic, and several guests rushed Alfine to the hospital. The party dispersed because the news from the hospital was very bad. Beautiful two-year-old little Alfine would die. Once again, nothing was found to be mysterious about Alfine's death. Later, when Jolly finally confesses, she tells police what really happened that day. Jolly had gone to the gathering knowing she would kill Alfine. At some point that morning, she tells Celie that Alfine was hungry and that Celie should take a moment to feed her daughter. Jolly knew Celie was very busy, and she knew Celie would ask her good friend to feed Alfine, and as predicted, that's what happened. Jolly went into the kitchen and prepared some bread and mutton curry for Alfine. In plain sight, in front of the guests and family, she sliced the bread. She quickly dipped her hand into her purse and stuck her finger into a little baggie full of a white powdery substance. She pinched it and rubbed it onto the bread. Alfine's older brother sees her rubbing the bread and assumes it was butter she was spreading on the bread. We all know now that it wasn't butter, it was cyanide. Jolly didn't bother to hide the poison away in a cupboard anymore. She carried it in her purse, where she could use it any time she needed it. Jolly carried the food out to the center of the crowd, but she doesn't feed Alfine herself. She asks Alfine's Aunt Sheena to do it. Sheena willingly and unknowingly feeds her niece the first bite of poisoned bread. Alfine eats it and then runs off to play. This is a risky move on Jolly's part. What if Sheena decided to take a bite for herself or feed another child with that same piece of bread? But that doesn't happen. Sheena calls Alfine back for a second piece. Moments after eating it, Alfine begins to cough and cry. 
People nearby think she's throwing a tantrum because she doesn't want to eat the food. Sheena was told to force feed Alfine, so Sheena forces two more bites into Alfine's mouth. The toddler begins gagging, and frothing shows up at the corner of her mouth. Now people believe she's choking. They pound her on the back, and they hold her upside down before deciding they need to take her to the hospital. In the meantime, Jolly blended quietly into the background. Shaju and Celie, panicking, rush Alfine to three different hospitals. All three rule out choking, but none of them know what's wrong with the child. At the third hospital, Alfine is put on life support for three days, but she loses her battle. Her death is a mystery. The doctors suggest that the family have an autopsy done, but Shaju declines. Six years later, he would regret this decision for so many reasons. First, because he may have been able to prevent another death. Second, because suspicions would arise that he knew about the plans to murder Alfine. Maybe he was even involved in the plot. Why? Because he would eventually become Jolly's second husband. But, at the moment of Alfine's death, it was agreed between Shaju and his wife Celie that Alfine hadn't been a healthy child. When she was born, she had congenital issues with both her heart and kidneys. She'd been an unhealthy child, but a happy one. Her loving parents suspected that she had died from those congenital issues. The question remains, though, why did Jolly feel the need to kill a two-year-old? Well, it was because she was playing the long game. She wanted Shaju, his status, and his money for herself. Shaju's older son was good friends with Jolly's own boys. The boy was fairly independent and could take care of himself, but a sickly two-year-old wasn't something Jolly wanted to deal with. The answer was simple, and upon Alfine's death, there was only one person in the way. Celie had to go. Celie's heart was broken after her baby's death, but Jolly did her best to ease the blow. By design, Celie and Jolly became inseparable friends. Jolly was cunning and kept her prey as close to her as possible, and it wasn't long before she pounced. Celie responded to the loss of her daughter with a desire for another child. She began taking alternative medicines to make herself more fertile. One day, after taking her normal dosage, she became very sick, displaying some of the symptoms that her daughter had earlier in the year. She was rushed to the hospital. The doctors believed she was going to die and only gave her a 5% chance of living, but Celie beat the odds and survived. Jolly surprisingly failed in her first attempt, and that wouldn't do, but it wasn't long before she made a second. A year and a half after Alfine's death, Celie would find herself sitting next to Jolly in a dentist's office. Jolly and her youngest son, Celie and her son, were all present at the office. This was because Shaju was terrified of the dentist and wanted Celie there for emotional support. Jolly volunteered to keep Celie company while Shaju had his appointment. Their boys were playing quietly together. Maybe Shaju was suffering under the dentist's pick, probably getting the lecture, your gums wouldn't bleed this much if you floss more often. Then suddenly he heard a scream from his son. He jumped out of the chair and ran to the waiting room. There he finds Jolly holding Celie on her lap. She's suffering the same symptoms she had months earlier. The same symptoms Alfine had. Jolly drove them to the hospital, 
but instead of going to the nearest one, Jolly chooses one further away. She wasted precious minutes, but at the time her excuse was that the second hospital was better. Celie was dead before she arrived at the second hospital. The doctors offered a post-mortem, but Jolly refused. This time, the doctors don't heed her words, and they try to get permission from Shaju, the direct relative. But he signed a rejection form under Jolly's directions. He was in shock and mourning and did whatever she said. Officially, there would be no record of Jolly's presence at the hospital whatsoever. Later, Jolly would fill in the blanks. She admitted to giving Celie some water mixed with cyanide that she kept in her purse. Jolly had honed her skills, and she did it safely. She would check her hands for cuts, and she would trim her fingernails so the poison wouldn't enter her body in any way. She handled the poison with bare fingers, and she confidently carried it with her to use at any convenient moment. At Celie's funeral, no one cried harder or more loudly than Jolly. When, as is tradition, it came time for Siju to kiss his wife's cheek, Jolly made a scandalous move. She bent down and kissed Celie's cheek at the same time. This move was likely calculated and implied a much closer relationship with Siju. Tongues began wagging, and rumors spread that Jolly had a closer relationship with Siju than expected. They wondered if Celie knew about the relationship when she was alive. Siju would deny this. He said he was just as surprised as everyone else when Jolly bent down to kiss his wife on the cheek at the same time he did. Looking back, he said he realizes this was a deliberate move. Because of this one event, it wasn't surprising later when people heard that Jolly approached Siju about the idea of marriage. He said no. It was way too early. He didn't even want to think of it for at least a year. But exactly a year later, he said yes. And just a couple weeks after that, they married. Now, finally, Jolly would be happy, wouldn't she? If she was, it was fleeting. Jolly was an extrovert. She always wanted company and attention. But Siju was an introvert. He preferred peace and quiet and being alone. He would eventually say that marrying Jolly was just a matter of convenience. There wasn't any love like his first marriage. Instead, it was more of a partnership to create a good family life for their children. Jolly was constantly on her phone, talking or texting, sometimes even in the middle of the night. One night, Siju demanded to see her phone and asked what was going on. This threw Jolly into a rage. At this point, he said he lost all feelings for her. He lived with the knowledge that this was purely a marriage of convenience, not one of love. He would say he heard conversations between Jolly and her boss at NIT. Later he would find out these were faked, as well as all the conversations he overheard her having with fake students. She even sometimes brought home fake tests to grade. It was a very elaborate game she was playing. The question Shaju had for Jolly was why she still had to borrow money. She borrowed money from her father. She even borrowed money from Shaju's father, and she always had an excuse. The first year they were married, she said she was taking time off from work and was studying to get her Ph.D. Then, she said, because of that time off, her pay had been reduced. Shaju just nodded and listened to her reassurances that things would be fine soon. By this point, Jolly had killed six people. 
Maybe life would have gone on normally, and she would have gotten away with multiple murders if it weren't for the flutter of rumors, a small, significant movement that would usher in a storm of justice. Rojo and Renji were still upset with Jolly over their father's will, even though it had been six years since he died. They weren't getting support from their family, who told them to leave Jolly alone, but they kept looking, and eventually they found one of Jolly's neighbors, who believed there was something strange about Jolly. They asked the police for a copy of the autopsy done on Roy. It was no surprise to see that cyanide had been found in the system. That they already knew. But what was interesting was that food had been found in his stomach. They vividly remembered Jolly making a big deal about the fact that Roy hadn't even had time to eat his favorite meal, the one she had lovingly prepared for him. Why she had repeatedly made a point to say he hadn't eaten when it was clear in the autopsy report that he had food in his belly. The food was identified as Roy's favorite meal, the one Jolly herself described preparing for Roy. She was caught in a lie. Rojo filed a complaint with the police, stating that he suspected foul play. The flutter of wings became a stiff breeze. With Rojo and Renji's tip, police quickly linked all the other deaths to Jolly. It was crystal clear now that all these people died in her company, and they all had similar symptoms. The storm began to rage. Police decided they wanted to dig up the bodies and have them tested for cyanide. When Jolly realized what was going on, she was shocked. She begged Rojo to stop the exhumations. He ignored her. She then went to church, asking them to spare the souls of the departed, but they weren't willing to step in. Her last resort was trying to bribe Rojo by telling him that she would settle the property dispute in his favor, but he turned her down. She knew she would be caught, so she began attending church with a fervor. She grew nervous, asking friends if the police had talked to them, and what did they say. She couldn't sleep or eat. The media began to follow the case. Soon they found that Jolly didn't work at NIT. When Sidju saw the video clip on the news, he confronted Jolly. She finally admitted to him that she didn't have a job there. The night before her arrest, her son asked her why she had killed his father. She broke down, cried, and confessed, asking for his forgiveness. The next day, she willingly gave the police her statement. She confessed to the crimes which I've shared with you. She gave the names of the men she seduced into helping her, and she quickly became the enemy of the public. People came out of the woodworks, claiming that they had been victims of Jolly's, either financially or physically. Renji, Jolly's sister-in-law, claimed that she believed she was poisoned at one point. Jolly openly confessed that she planned to kill Sidju too, because she now wanted to marry her alleged long-term lover and politician friend, Johnson. His wife likely would have been a victim as well. Jolly Ama Joseph has not yet gone to trial. Her case currently is based on her confession and the statements of hundreds of witnesses. The trouble lies with the fact that cyanide is unstable in a dead body. Often it's undetectable after a short period of time because it evaporates. A medical team was formed to confirm whether the other deaths were because of poisoning, 
and after analyzing the statements of witnesses about the symptoms the victims had exhibited before and during their death, they determined that all the victims had been poisoned. Police are currently investigating further allegations of murder. Jolly has been held in jail for two years now. Siju has filed for divorce. I'll be sure to follow up on this case when she is sentenced. Thank you so much for listening. I put a lot of time and effort into each and every case. If you enjoyed it, please take a moment to give this podcast a nice review and rating. Please share it with a friend, and if you're feeling generous, you can contribute monetarily. There are links to do so in the show description. That's also where you'll find my resources. Speaking of resources, there's an excellent podcast you should listen to if you like this case. It's called Death, Lies, and Cyanide, and it goes into much greater detail. It's also beautifully done. I have a couple of thank yous I'd like to share. Thank you so much to KCICC, who says, Five stars. Great stories I haven't heard anywhere else. Well done. I'd also like to thank Arlong26, who gave me five stars and says, Love her voice. Very soothing. Doesn't speak too fast like some others and puts her own little comments in from time to time, which I like. I listen to several true crime podcasts, but she's definitely one of my faves, so keep them coming, please. Thank you both so much for taking the time to rate and review. I really appreciate it. I appreciate your kind words. You are the best. Thank you. Thanks again to all of you, and here's wishing you all fair winds and following seas.